Amicus is sponsored by The Great Courses, offering engaging audio and video lectures taught by top professors. Courses like The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution. Right now, get up to 80% off the original price when you visit thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. Hello and welcome to Amicus, Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, Slate's Supreme Court correspondent. And this week saw the close of the 2014 term with decisions in two cases, at least, that we've talked about on this show. In one, the court limited the reach of the Clean Air Act because the agency had failed to do a cost analysis in an emissions regulation. It also allowed the use of midazolam, one of the drugs used in the lethal injection protocol in Oklahoma. The term ended last Monday with a lot of very strange friction and anger between the justices, and they have now scattered to their various summer haunts. Uh, This scattering could not have happened too soon for some of them. And we're going to talk to Mark Stern, who covers the court for Slate, and to Christian Turner of the University of Georgia a little bit later in the show about the optics and the weirdness of the last few days. But first, we're going to talk to Kenji Yoshino about some of the fallout from Obergefell, last week's marriage equality decision. Kenji teaches at NYU Law School, and he recently published Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial, a remarkable account of the Prop 8 trial in California. That was the other case that wasn't the DOMA case that came up to the Supreme Court that questioned uh, whether marriage uh, was a constitutional right, and the court was not ready to decide it at that time. I should just note for listeners that we reached Kenji way off the grid. Like most of the justices, he's gone to some undisclosed underground location, and so we apologize in advance for the quality of the recording. Kenji, welcome to Amicus. Thanks so much for having me, Dahlia. So, I think that I want to ask you first and foremost about the role of courts in deciding these marriage questions, because, of course, the principal objection of the dissenters, all four of them in Obergefell, was that we had usurped the political process by letting the courts decide this, and that it's not appropriate for courts to decide this. But it seems to me that your book, Speak Now, offers a pretty eloquent argument for why perhaps marriage needed to be resolved in the courts. Can you talk about that a little? Yes, absolutely. Uh, I wrote the book because I was mesmerized by this 12-day trial that occurred uh, with regard to the constitutionality of Prop 8 in California. And that 12-day trial seemed to me to be the most rigorous, comprehensive, and humane discussion that we had ever had about same-sex marriage in this country and perhaps the world, and really elevated the discourse with regard to all of the questions of facts, like, you know, are gay parents better or worse than straight parents? You know, will allowing gay marriage to be institutionalized, uh, straight couples will be less likely to enter into the institution, and so on and so forth. And so I think one of the things that was really telling with the Obergefell case was that the justices really shied away from all of the uh, fact-based claims. There are very few citations dropped in the defense, for example, and there are very few claims uh, about things like, you know, we're going to preserve bans on marriage because gay parents are worse than straight parents. And in fact, during oral argument, when Mary Bonato was asked, you know, aren't you asking the court to go really far, really fast, you know, ahead of the social science, what she said is, you know, we've actually had trials on this issue uh, when she was asked that question by Justice Kennedy. And she said, you know, every court to have looked at this issue, whether that's Michigan or uh, the California Pop 8 trial or the Hawaii trial or the adoption trials that occurred in Florida and Arkansas, all came out resoundingly in favor of the fact that there was no difference. Same sex and opposite sex parenting. 
And Kenji, isn't also part of your point, if I understand the book correctly, that the nice thing about having a trial is it smokes out the the space between these religious arguments that get couched in pretext and having to actually say, okay, if we can't make a religious argument, this is the best we've got, and that there's something really useful about forcing those arguments out of the framing of because it's just against our religion? Yes, exactly right. People kept uh, comparing this to the scope trial, saying it was a show trial and so on and so forth. But if anything, I think it was more like the scope two trial, um, which was the Kitzmiller versus Dover trial in 2005, where the Dover school board was saying that intelligent design is completely different from creationism. And the judge, you know, a Republican appointee said, this is not a sort of theoretical question. It's an empirical question. So let's have a trial. And he had a very, very extended trial in which he said, you know, this is just old barn and new bottles. Like there's nothing that makes intelligent design more scientific than creationism. So Kenji, what does it mean to you when you read the dissents? And I guess I'm thinking specifically of Sam Alito's dissent, but certainly in Justice Antonin Scalia's dissent that we're back at religion again, right? That the principal objection is uh, that religious people are going to see their rights trammeled. In other words, uh, talk about old wine in new bottles. It's problematic in the extreme that insofar as the point of this was to get away from people's uh, religious and conscience objections and to really smoke out reasons, the dissenters are, are back at religion. Yes, exactly. Although the posture now is really different, right, Talia? Because initially they were playing offense and saying, we want our religious objections or religious views baked into the law itself, namely the bans on same-sex marriage. Now that the majority has decided what it's decided, what they're complaining about is uh, we want religious exemptions as a defensive matter from laws of general applicability, namely you know, same-sex marriage. And so their posture has shifted, but you're right that the through line is that, you know, the idea is that uh, religious liberties are going to be trammeled um, because, you know, they haven't been able to bake them into the law itself or have robust, you know, Religious Freedom Restoration Act type protection uh, when this rises to the constitutional level. And Kenji, I wonder if you can speculate for me, because I, I'm trying to wrap my head around whether this is going to be a big pushback or a little pushback. Is your sense of what you've seen in the last week that there's going to be massive resistance, that clerks around the country are going to decline to issue licenses, that there's going to be an enormous amount of uh, religious conscience objections claimed? Or is this going to shake out fairly quickly uh, and folks are going to get in line? I, I can't quite determine whether the response to this is going to be, you know, in the order of magnitude of Brown versus Board of Education, which is to say years and years of uh, digging in and massive resistance and a refusal to comply? Or is it going to be more like Loving versus Virginia, the anti-miscegenation case, where eh, the states were already pretty much in line and everybody pretty much fell in with the court's uh, ruling? Is this going to be a brown kind of backlash? Or are people going to just squawk a little and then take it in stride? Yeah, I think it's going to be much more along the lines of uh, loving than along the lines of Brown, in part because of the administrability issue. Uh, it's very, very difficult to integrate a school. It is not that difficult to issue a same-sex marriage license. So I think in terms of top-down control, 
we have to think about just the nitty gritty of how hard it is to administer things. It's, you know, very, very hard to force somebody to integrate uh, an institution, but it's very, very easy to force somebody to issue a marriage license. And I would also point out that, and Justice Kennedy, I think, was quite mindful of this during oral argument. He said, you know, the same amount of time has passed between Lawrence, which was the 2003 case that struck down sodomy statutes, often called the Brown v. Board of the Gay Rights Movement, and this case today, Obergefell, as passed between Brown versus Board and Loving versus Virginia, approximately. He was off by one year. But I think that what makes this more like Loving than it makes it like Brown is that we've been able to live under this idea that gays and lesbians are equal members of society and that moral disapproval of homosexuality is not a sufficient justification to enact laws that hurt um, gays and lesbians. And so I think that after Lawrence has decided Ginsburg put it really well when she said we need to live under Lawrence for a while. And I think we've been able to live under that ideal of equality for a sufficiently long period of time that now that we're being asked to live up to that ideal and to grant full social equality as well as political and civil equality to gays and lesbians through marriage, um, that is much less of a leap for the country to take as the opinion polling and other things show. So I'm just not expecting the same kind of backlash for those reasons. Kenji Yoshino teaches law at NYU Law School. He recently published Speak Now, Marriage Equality on Trial, an account of the Prop 8 trial in California. Thank you so, so much for being with us here on Amicus today. It's my great pleasure. Thanks for having me. So in a moment, we're going to consider really the spectacle of the end of the Supreme Court term. But first, I want to say a few words about our sponsor, The Great Courses. Now, learning doesn't stop after we leave school, especially learning about the law and the Constitution. That's why you listen to Amicus, and it's also the motivation behind The Great Courses. The Great Courses offers over 500 courses in all sorts of subjects, ranging from the law to science to history, and it's available in audio and video formats. One of the courses they offer, The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, goes exactly to the issues that we talk about on this show. In The Great Debate, you'll hear about the framers of the Constitution, the factions, the anger, and really the coalescing of the framing document by people like Madison, Jefferson, Patrick Henry. The Great Course has created a special time-limited offer for listeners of Amicus. If you order from eight of their best-selling courses, including The Great Debate, Advocates and Opponents of the American Constitution, you can get them at up to 80% off the original price. So go to thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. That's thegreatcourses.com slash amicus. And now we have one more URL to throw your way. It's slate.com slash academy. And what will you find there? Well, right now you will find the first four episodes of what is going to be a nine-part podcast series all about the history of slavery in the United States. It features Slate writers Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion, as well as a number of leading scholars of slavery, and it is part of an extensive online course available exclusively to Slate Plus members. So check it out at slate.com academy. And now we're going to turn to Mark Joseph Stern. He's a legal contributor at Slate. He's anchored so much of both our LGBT and court coverage, and we are delighted to talk about the drama of the end of the Supreme Court term. Mark Stern, welcome to Amicus. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a dream come true. (laughs) 
Well, I thought we would talk first about just some big trends and themes we see uh, in the end of the term. And uh, then I thought we could turn to how the heck uh, you cover a court that refuses to be covered. Sounds fun. So, Mark, let's start with what did you see as I think if we, you know, have all been reading uh, what's been said at the end of the term, what do you think of the meme that says uh, it's Anthony Kennedy's world, we all just live in it, and that this, more than anything else, the takeaway this term is that what Kennedy wants, Kennedy gets. I wish I could say something fresher and and more exciting than this, but I think that remains very true. Um, There was only one five to four decision this year uh, that John Roberts uh, led the liberals on, which was, of course, the um, judicial campaign finance case. There was one other five four decision when Clarence Thomas joined the liberals to uh, uphold a ban on Confederate flag license plates, which, as you know, was very disappointing to my mind. Um, But otherwise, you know, the really big 5-4 cases were all Anthony Kennedy, either siding with the conservatives or siding with the liberals. And so it seems to remain very, very true that there is a a very conservative block, a moderately liberal block, and one man in the middle who very much enjoys playing God and uh, siding with whichever side better speaks to his enthusiasms. And it's incredible to me, Mark, I think that's exactly right, that Kennedy, some things are just visible to him and and some are not. And so, for instance, you know, thousands of children being raised by same-sex couples and their need for dignity is so urgent and so imperative to him. Um, Race discrimination, not so much. Not so much. And uh, women's equality, certainly not that visible to him. He doesn't really mind Hobby Lobby uh, discriminating against female employees, denying them contraception through their own health care plans. He also doesn't seem to be particularly upset by the fact that many, many workers in this country are dramatically underpaid and that the only way they have a shot at earning a fair wage is through a union. Um, As you know, the court just took a case that could basically wipe out public sector unions uh, under a very, very tenuous theory of a a free speech claim. So I think you're right that Kennedy just has these pet issues that completely obsess him. One of them is gay rights, which is, you know, very good for the country. uh, But two of them are really quite bad for the country. He's blind to race discrimination, and he's blind to sex discrimination. Well, I guess we should say he's not completely blind because he he sprang a, a surprise fifth vote, right, to uphold a key, key rule that is going to keep the Fair Housing Act still functioning. I think it's complicated because if you read carefully uh, his opinion in the Texas Fair Housing Act case, it seems as though he's saying, I kind of get it. Uh, We need to continue to be solicitous of the fact that there is race discrimination in this country, but I just don't like these sort of yucky, numeric, quantitative solutions. So it's, it's a little bit complicated because we can't say he's entirely blind to race. And we may find out next term in the affirmative action context, uh, really how he thinks about race discrimination. But at least uh, in the fair housing context, he let the Fair Housing Act, as it has existed for decades, live to see another day. 
Yes, and he definitely deserves credit for that, as well as for recognizing that unconscious prejudice is a real thing that exists in America, uh, something Chief Justice John Roberts does not want to accept. Um, And I think that the skeleton key to his views on race and the law is really uh, his parents-involved concurrence, the blockbuster affirmative action case from uh, almost eight years ago now, where he uh, ruled that a Seattle scheme that sent uh, uh, more black kids to higher performing schools was unconstitutional, but then said, I'm not going to side with the hardliners here. There could be some race conscious affirmative action programs, but I just haven't seen one that I like yet. There might be a constitutional one, but I just haven't seen it. And so Papa Kennedy decides. That's right. I wonder if we can turn to the other big, big takeaway from the term, which is uh, the New York Times last week called this the winningest term for the left since 1969, that how is it possible that a court that is dominated by some of the most conservative justices we've seen in decades and that is anchored by uh, center-right Anthony Kennedy nevertheless sees more wins for the left wing of the court than we have seen in decades. And this comes just years years after the same New York Times said, this is the most conservative court of our lifetimes. So what's going on? Why is the left on a winning streak this So to my mind, there was exactly one liberal ruling this term, which was the marriage equality ruling. That was, by any standard, very liberal. Um, It used liberal perceptions of due process and liberty and equal protection to bring marriage equality to the entirety of America. I will not deny that that was very much a liberal ruling. Every single other ruling that has been praised as liberal, the ruling on Obamacare, the fair housing ruling, uh, these were cases that never should have been brought in the first place. Um, These were basically right-wing pipe dreams that conservative lawyers sort of got together, colluded, and decided maybe we have a shot at finally knocking down these doctrines we don't like. We don't like disparate impact theory. We're going to see if we can get the court to gut the Fair Housing Act. We don't like Obamacare. We're going to see if we can get the court to basically destroy it by misinterpreting this one phrase in a sub-sub-subsection of the law. Um, I think that this was not so much a liberal term as the term when John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy sort of put their, their feet down collectively and said, listen, Federalist Society, we're going to uh, keep pushing to the right on the issues that we really believe in, uh, but we're not going to entertain your new notions of just how far the law can go to further, frankly, the Republican cause. And it's interesting. I think it's worth uh, citing to a really thoughtful piece by Ian Milheiser and Think Progress that makes the point that this is exactly what John Roberts was signaling in the King case, in the Obamacare case, that what he was saying was, we will not be your weapon of choice. Like, you want to play your reindeer games, that's fine. Go play it in the Congress. Do not play it at the U.S. Supreme Court because we are not going to be the engine of whatever it is that, you know, be it the Tea Party or the Federalist Society, whatever groups uh, are using the court to try to say, let's advance uh, certain values. At the end of the day, we're the court. 
That's exactly right. Uh, and there is a temptation to praise Roberts for that. But there's also a lot of self-interest driving his instincts here. As you have frequently mentioned on Amicus, he is fixated on the court's institutional legacy, on his own legacy. And he understands that if the court released a really preposterous ruling gutting Obamacare and taking away millions of people's health care, the court's legacy and legitimacy would be on the line. And he's just not willing to do that to the institution he obviously loves. Mark, one other theme that I think bears flagging, and again, I've seen a lot of this uh, in folks who are trying to construct an understanding of what this term meant, and that is that the left wing of the court acts in almost perfect unison. In other words, what we saw was a real fracture on the court's right, uh, failure to vote together all the time, some sharp knives coming out at the end of the term from, you know, the pragmatists going after the idealists, the idealists going after the pragmatists. There's a really thoughtful piece by Eric Posner in Slate sort of saying that what we really saw was not so much a left-winning term, but what we saw was the right eating itself alive. Is that correct? I think that's largely correct. Uh, and in your discussion with Carrie Severino a few weeks ago, you guys really explained and and described how Thomas had just marches to the beat of his own drum. So does Scalia, especially on uh, textualist matters, originalist matters. Um, and so you have these two hardcore originalists, uh, Scalia and Thomas, and then you have two more pragmatic, flexible conservatives, Alito and Roberts. Uh, Alito is willing to bend whatever doctrine he needs to, to my mind, to to reach uh, a, a result that is in line with the Republican Party's values. Uh, Roberts is less partisan, but he still does not really call himself a textualist or an originalist. Uh, and so between those four, you've got a deep ideological fracture. Kennedy just does whatever Kennedy wants. He's Papa Kennedy. Um, and so compare that to the four liberals who are very, very smart about sticking together because they're used to being in the minority. They're used to always having four votes and coming up one vote short for that majority they crave. And so they're willing to sacrifice some values. You know, I'm sure that Elena Kagan wanted the marriage equality ruling to be an equal protection ruling with heightened scrutiny for gay people. Everybody knows that that's what the liberals wanted. But they signed on to Kennedy's kind of hazy fundamental rights ruling because that's what got them to the jurisprudential result they needed. Uh, I don't think that Clarence Thomas would ever do that. We know Scalia wouldn't do that. He said as much in a footnote. Um, so you've just got a lot of pragmatism on the left that the right is lacking. Right. We're going to take our wins where we can find them. We're not writing crazy concurrences. We're just going to just live to see another day. That's right. So, Mark, I wondered if we could uh, celebrate the end of the term with just a tiny little bit of ceremonial kvetching, which is to say, uh, I get so much email from people saying, how do you guys do this at the end of the term? Because we see these people and they're running across the plaza in their little sneakers. And why doesn't the court release this and that? And why don't we know what's coming? So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about, given that the court is pretty constrained, right? We're not going to get audio of these uh, decision days for months. Uh, certainly, <laughs> we're not going to get video of these decision days for centuries, uh, if ever. So can you talk a little bit about what it is that we do at Slate that attempts to communicate to our readers what is happening in kind of realish time inside a building that styles itself as the Oracle at Delphi? How do we get the word out? Can you talk about it a little? 
So for the really big blockbusters, uh, listeners, you should know that Dahlia and I have a delicate dance that we have really gotten to perfection this year. Um, Dahlia goes into the courtroom and uh, sits and waits in near total silence until the clock strikes 10, while I sit at my desk uh, at the Slate office here in D.C. with a bottle of Xanax uh, close at hand, and I get on SCOTUS blog, just like the rest of the world, and I generally have stories pre-written for all the different outcomes that I think are likely in the big blockbuster cases. And as soon as that uh, information comes out from SCOTUS blog, I update all the relevant details. Uh, Every once in a while, I forget to fill in something, as I did in the King v. Burwell initial post. Um, uh, And I hit publish. And it goes live usually one or two minutes after the rest of the world knows. So our readers are are pretty well informed. And then usually about 20 minutes later, um, Dahlia comes running down the hallway of the Slate building and says, I have something, I have something and uh, runs into her office and then tries to bang out a post before the 8,000 radio and TV interviews she has to do come breathing down her neck. That's the routine for the really big blockbuster days. For the smaller days, usually uh, one of us just goes into the Supreme Court and, uh, well, Dahlia, do you want to uh, describe all of the ridiculous hoops we have to jump through just to enter the building? No, because we love the Supreme Court, Mark, and we, <laughs> and we love our press pass. And so I will not uh, complain. But I, I will say that I think you have properly captured the utter weirdness of, you know, A, uh, if you choose to go into the chamber, uh, A, they take away all your stuff. And so you sit there with a, a pen and a notepad and uh, you wait for but half But not a hour. spiral notebook. Not a no spiral spirals. notebook. Yeah. And they check your pens now. I think it's worth saying because too many people have snuck in spy pens cameras. Uh, now and they flip through the pages of your notebook to make sure you don't have anything subversive in there. Right. And I should add that uh, I spent the day of the Obergefell in the half hour before it came down. And it's worth flagging for listeners. We didn't know it was coming down last week. Um, but I spent the half hour before the justices took their seats on the bench uh, writing notes to my kids at camp that ended up uh, with many expletives when I realized that Obergefell was coming down down uh, just over and over again. Oh, my God, it's today. Holy, holy, holy. And then I popped it in an envelope and sent it a little tiny piece of history for my sons. But yeah, it's a really strange situation. And I I also want to flag mark because I think this is somewhat important. Uh, On Monday, when Glossip, which was the lethal injection case, came down, Justice Scalia was doing some, may I use the term jiggery-pokery, up on the bench. Uh, you I'd know, call it pure applesauce. Pure applesauce. Really different, right? Uh, not, in fact, reading from his concurrence, but just kind of, I don't know, performance art. You know, I here's some stuff I hate about what Justice Breyer did in his dissent. Uh, and it's funny, there's no account of that other than from the handful of journalists who are in the room. That's absolutely right. And a very disappointing fact for people like me who are sitting at their desks a mile away waiting to update our own dear readers on the news. Um, But it really just does demonstrate why the court loves not having cameras, because Scalia can get away with something like that. And you have maybe three journalists who take the time to write about it and everybody else just is in the dark. I I think maybe uh, the way to characterize it, Mark, in closing is that there are two realities on decision days. There is what you download from SCOTUS blog and what's written in the opinion. And then there is this other world of what's happening in the court. And there's almost no record of that. It's almost as though that has disappeared. That's right. And I'm sure the justices wouldn't have it any other way. 
Well, that's an amazing note to close on, Mark. Uh, I want to thank you so much for all the uh, yeoman's work you did at the Slate Breakfast Table and getting posts up and uh, enabling me to sit there in the chamber and emerge blinking uh, six hours later after the news has been made. Uh, Really, really, I thank you so much. Mark Joseph Stern covers LGBT issues and legal affairs at Slate. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on Amicus. Thanks so much for having me on. Now, before we turn to the strange tone of the dissents and concurrences at the very end of the term, I want to pause for a moment to tell you a little bit about our second sponsor today, FreshBooks. If you're somebody who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky administrative tasks means having a lot more time to focus on your clients and their work. That's why you should give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. So even if you're not a numbers person, you will be shocked at how easy FreshBooks really is to use. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com amicus and enter amicus in in the How Did You Hear About Us section of the sign-up page. So now I want to turn to my friend Christian Turner, who teaches at the University of Georgia Law School and hosts with Joe Miller Oral Argument, which is one of my favorite legal podcasts. It's about law, legal theory, law school. And I've had so much mail this week from people saying, I have never seen justices, just feral, crazy fangs out, opinions and concurrences and dissents. And I wanted to ask you, um, because you think so hard about how the justice is right, is this of a piece with what we've seen in prior uh, terms, or have the justices just lost their minds? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's different, don't you? I mean, I think there's... um you know, at the end of this term, especially, the, you know, the uh, Burwell case and, and the gay marriage case, you know, I, I guess I go back and I think, you know, you think about a family or a corporation or, or like I'm on a law school, like those organizations can work really well, even if people are radically disagree about things, right? Because you, you can disagree with people and it's fine. It can be fine. I think things go off the rails in just about any organization when in the face of disagreement, one party says, you know what, I think that person's saying that thing, not because of the things that they're saying, but they have other reasons, right? They, they have other motivations. And I think those motivations are these and they're bad, et cetera. And I started to get a hint of that in, in these latter two opinions, right? I mean, especially, I think Scalia's criticisms of, of Kennedy's opinions as, as basically failed attempts to write for the ages, right? To put himself in the history books. Like that to me goes at motivation in a way that, you know, I think about prior like Scalia full-throated dissents, like back in the Casey Martin uh, golfer case uh, back in the day, the ADA case, which are just, you know, there's very, you know, like I said, full-throated defenses of his position and attacks on the reasoning of the majority. And, and these felt to me a little bit different. And, and I read them and I wonder, you know, how do you go to work the next day and interact with somebody that you've basically said is, you know, pompous and writing for the ages, but failing to do so. And I would put my head in a bag before I would sign on to such a thing. I mean, didn't you see that as well? I I did. And I thought, you know, it's so interesting because you hear tell that one of the things that happened to Sandra Day O'Connor that drove her to the center and even left-ish center of the court on some issues was just taking it personally. You know, that when Scalia would write in an opinion, like that her reasoning and rationale is, quote, not to be believed, uh, that that does 
have an effect. And I, you know, Toni Morrow wrote a great story at the end of last week saying, no, no, the justices don't take it personally. You know, they all just, this is just the way they do things. And I think, you know, if someone said not just that, you know, Anthony Kennedy can't write and he writes like a fortune cookie, but that anyone who signed off on his opinion in order to get to five needs to put a bag on their head. I mean, that's beyond X is not to be believed. That sounds like a personal assault. Yeah. And, you know, I was I've been totally on board with the idea that, you know, one of the ways that this institution is transparent, because it's not through, you know, video of oral arguments, as you know, it, it, it's it's that they state their reasons. Right. They are open about their disagreements. Uh, that's why I've led many of them to suggest that they are the most transparent of the branches of government and the institutions of government. Uh, and I've been totally on board with the idea that they are disagreeing in a really serious way, really serious ways that they don't hold back. And that makes the institution stronger. And, you know, notwithstanding that, they can go to the opera together, or go hunting together. These things happen. I could believe that because I would like to be a part of an organization like that. Right. Uh, but I, I have to say, you know, once you slip from the bonds of attacking reasoning in a full throated way and you start to wonder, I think you're doing this for reasons that you're not really stating. Uh, or I think that, you know, your personality is somehow defective for doing this. I, I wonder. I mean, I don't know. There's no way to know. Uh, and it's not that I'm interested in the soap opera of it, but I just wonder, you know, this is an institution, so many of the rules of which are not written down. Like, you know, how are you supposed to dissent? The Constitution doesn't say that. How are you supposed to interpret the Constitution? The Constitution doesn't say that. So much of it is practice that's built up over the ages. So much of it is the interaction between them. And, you know, you worry that that can get broken in a way that's not easily uh, repaired. And did you see any of that in the... I I had a couple minutes that for me, and I wrote about, I think, most of them. I think that there was something profoundly different being in the chamber when Obergfell was decided and the chief justice was reading his dissent. Now, you know, A, he's never read a dissent in 10 years. This was his first time reading a dissent. But B, and this was so powerful in the chambers and it didn't resonate out in the world, is that he had seated in front of him some of the lawyers in the LGBT legal advocacy movement who have been working on this for 20, 30 years, wow. right? Evan Wolfson is sitting there, Pam Carlin, Paul Smith, who's been on this show, you know, Mary uh, Bonato, who argued it. They're sitting directly in front of him as he's reading that caution at the end. You go ahead, you celebrate, you know, have your day. But this has nothing to do with the Constitution. That's really different on paper than when it's directed at people who have dedicated their lives, it seems to me, to saying that the Constitution guarantees that. And I heard that his summary was, you know, the actual opinion is is filled with kind of caveats about, um, you know, almost, he doesn't go this far to say, you know, I would even vote in favor of, of gay marriage were it subject to a plebiscite, but I can't rule on the basis of the Constitution. But I heard, and I don't know if this is true, that in the summary, there was a less of that kind of caveat language and more this has nothing to do with the Constitution language. Is it, that right? It was a very strong reading and hard not to take it as a rebuke sitting in the room if you had been an advocate uh, on the side of uh, gay marriage. The other moment that I saw that was, I thought, very, very fundamentally different just sitting in the chamber was, uh, and it goes to exactly your point, Christian, about questioning motives, is Sam Alito. Again, this is in Glossop versus Gross, the uh, lethal injection case, and Justice Samuel Alito is reading from an opinion that questions the integrity of these 
quote, you know, abolitionists, the death penalty abolitionists, the people who have worked to do away with uh, the lethal injection drugs that are efficacious. Therefore, we're forced to use these crap drugs that don't work. And he puts that at the doorstep of the abolitionists. And there's really a feeling sitting there in the chamber that the people who advocate for the end of the death penalty are really the, the bad guys here. And some of that gets swept up into the accusations toward the dissenters. I mean, it's weird, right? I mean, as if uh, even if they are death penalty abolitionists, as if they're the only group which has a litigation strategy in front of the Supreme Court. Right. I mean, <laughs> think about think about, uh, you know, the the abortion abolitionists, right, you know, right. they get the solicitude of, you know, their free speech rights are protected, uh, even if it impinges on constitutional I mean, This is how right. it works with the professional Supreme Court bar and advocacy groups that are plugged into it. I mean, every case is a is a piece of a larger strategy. And surely he knows this, right? Every every case is not just about the, that case. Yeah, I, I have to say, I, I felt on Monday when the term ended that a, I needed a shower, that I hadn't <laughs> seen such really rank accusations yeah. of bad faith, uh, and B, that I was really glad the justices were not going to see each other for a little while. It was not uh, a pleasant end of term. I guess I want to ask you one last question about this, which is, do you think that when they come back in October, this is all forgotten? It's just nap and a snack and yeah. move on? Or do you think that this really rankles and that people hold these grudges for a long time? <laughs> you know, I'd, I'm not going to put anybody on the couch or try, you know, that it would be ironic, right, to guess at their motivations and their psychology, having said that one of the problems is guessing at motivations. But, uh, you know, it's how the individual psychologies react to what I think is an essential problem the court faces, right? The essential problem is that at its heart, I agree with those who say that the court deals in political questions. It resolves political questions using a kind of politics. And I think one way you can see it is in the, in the gay marriage decision, you know, I think this is about a political judgment by the court that gays and lesbians are part now of the community of equals. And now being part of the community of equals, if you're going to discriminate, you have to give us a reason, right? And both of those conclusions, right, that there are no longer good reasons and that they are part of the community of equals, those are conclusions which are now socially acceptable and the opposites of which are not really socially acceptable in many circles. For example, if you go back and you look at the um, concurrence in Bowers versus Hardwick, And you look at the arguments which support in the minds of the concurrence why uh, sodomy bans are perfectly okay under the Constitution. I don't think you could utter most of those arguments in polite company these days. And I think that's how law changes, right? That's the sense in which the court is political, that there are arguments that support the rationality of something which fall away over time as they're no longer socially acceptable. So, you know, they're like, eight different directions that are all pointing towards this uh, kerfuffle, this uh, psychological meltdown, if it is that, of this comedy that we've seen on the court for quite some time, the ability to disagree strongly and yet, you know, still go hunting together. Will that be the same after this? I don't, you know, I read these opinions and I don't see how, but then, you know, I don't see behind the, uh, the velvet curtain of the court, so I don't know. Well, I think as we close the velvet curtain of the court on the 2014 term, it's really worth thinking about whether a dissent that says, by the way, you're a crap writer and I hate you, (laughs) uh, really serves any useful ends. Christian Turner, thank you so, so much for joining us this week on Amicus. Thank you, Dolly. It's been great. Christian Turner teaches at the University of Georgia Law School. Christian and his colleague, Joe Miller, also have a legal podcast that you should definitely check out. It's called Oral Argument. You can find it in the iTunes store or wherever you go to get your podcasts. 
And that is going to be it for this final Supreme Court term wrap-up episode of Amicus. As always, we're so eager to hear what you think. Our email address is amicus at slate.com. That's A-M-I-C-U-S at slate.com. We really love your letters, and we appreciate all the terrific suggestions we've been getting from you for summer topics for this podcast. We're going to pick up a few of them later on in August, but first, we're going to take a little break. Before we sign off, I just want to say thank you to all of you who have listened and written in and told your friends and really helped us make this inaugural year of Amicus such a great success. We have had so much fun doing this podcast, and we look forward to doing a lot more. So we're signing off for the first part of the summer. We'll be back the third week in August with a brand new episode. If you haven't caught up on all 22 of our previous episodes, hey, this is the time to do it. And you'll find them all at slate.com slash amicus. And if you're a Slate Plus member, you're going to find transcripts of our episodes there. They post just a few days after the podcast themselves. If you're not a member already, consider becoming one. You can sign up for a free two-week trial at slate.com slash amicus plus. A big, big thank you this week to Christian Turner, who engineered today's podcast. The producer of Amicus is the wonderful Tony Field. Our managing producer is Joel Meyer. Andy Bowers is our executive producer. Amicus is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster of podcasts at iTunes.com slash Panoply. I'm Dahlia Lithwick. I am unbelievably tired. Have a fantastic summer. We will be back with you before you know it with another brand new episode of Amicus.